wrapped up in in uh, the sort of typical modernist view of the world, of the cosmos, um, and wrapped up too in, um, or rather as a basis of classical mechanistic science, um, is what we might call reductionist views of, of different kinds. But uh, one of them, we touched on this before in different areas and psychological theories and stuff, but right now what I want to emphasize is, is what I call bottom-up assumptions, uh, assumptions of... Um, that uh, reality and the things of the world are sort of created, if you like, from the bottom up. In other words, subatomic particles come together, they make atoms, which come together to make molecules, which come together to make larger structures, which make the things, the perceivable things of our world. And there's a bottom-up causality and a bottom-up also, um, if you like, I mean, more philosophically, um, a a, a bottom-up kind of... um, notion of reality. In other words, the real things there are these little billiard ball subatomic particles and then then they build up. So it's a kind of reductionism to the the smaller and the more elemental, if you like. But one of the things I think it's really important uh, to realize in in terms of maturity of insight is to realize that to a certain extent, both in our personal experience and also in science and in, 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 in the wider um, culture, that to a certain extent, the views and conceptions we have or with which we approach um, whatever it is, a scientific problem or uh, experience, existence, the views and the conceptions we have um, actually, in a way, generate or um, uh, uh, give us, fabricate the experiences, then it feels like we then discover if we're not aware of it. So this has very much to do with the whole idea of um, ways of looking and conceptions, fabricating perception. The same is also true about um, science. Uh, To a certain extent, materialistic, mechanistic science, that's what it will find. Through certain assumptions, it's then what it what we seem to then discover objectively, independently, is just reflecting back our paradigm, our point of view, our assumptions. And these reductionist views that I talked about, this bottom-up kind of uh, conception, um, that is, again, it's actually part of scientific materialism, which is part of the secularism that is the dominant view nowadays. Why am I mentioning this? What I want to point out is that... Um, you know, there's an alternative view, which is, again, the more, if you like, Neoplatonic view, or what, what, was, what used to be more popular historically um, in the West and, and also in, in the East, is a kind of top-down metaphysics. Top-down. There's a kind of, um, uh, again, this idea that um, things, objects, uh, whatever it is, have their origins um, higher, their roots um, higher in the divine, or in certain, and then that, uh, if you like, emanates down to create um, a, a lower stage. But the lower stage is kind of included um, in the upper stage somehow. So it's a, it's a kind of top-down metaphysics, a top-down philosophy, if this makes sense. So the top being. God or the divine, and then there's kind of levels of world soul and all this. Um, so there's lots of versions of that, but there's a top-down metaphysics, um, and we can uh, 
compare and contrast that with this bottom-up metaphysics that we have nowadays as the dominant view. What I want to say is we're not then, at least I'm not interested in just replacing or substituting a top-down metaphysics, a top-down um, belief, um, uh, uh, replacing the sorry, replacing the bottom-up metaphysics with a top-down metaphysics. I'm not just wanting to switch the belief 180 degrees. Rather, just substitute one for the other. Rather, can we? Um, I'm interested in what happens. Is it possible to? <clears throat> in practice, suspend the habitual indoctrinated beliefs and assumptions uh, that are basically reductionistic. Can I actually just suspend that in my view as a practice? Actually just not buy into that right now in terms of my experience. So within that, what I want to say is both these views um, may have a certain validity to them. uh, Top down, bottom up. Um, and both of them might be views to um, experiment with. I mean, in practice, practice again as experiment, as research, as flexibility of ways of looking. What happens when I view through a lens that is informed by the conception of a top down metaphysics? We're not used to that in this culture. And what happens when I view things through this bottom-up metaphysics? We can do this as an exercise, and maybe on on retreat we will do this as an exercise. Um, And within that experimenting, there's a curiosity. How then, through this lens, through this, informed by this conception, how then does my experience um, arise or differ when there's this lens or that lens? Perception, the fabrication of perception. What are the effects on the soulfulness or the soul making? And what, um, if you like, are the relative strengths and weaknesses, not just as intellectual arguments, but also in experience of, of these two views, top-down, bottom-up metaphysics. So, for example, recognizing that with the bottom-up metaphysics, um, as it's usually conceived in a, in a modernist uh, version, um, there is this kind of flattening that goes there. Scientific materialism, everything is just this mechanical, meaningless matter. That's all that really exists. Everything is just that, therefore it's flat. And that when that is the perception, it's very hard to um, feel or kind of have a basis for meaningfulness. So recognizing what the effects of different conceptions are and and uh, ways of looking in the actually in the Pali Canon and certainly in Mahayana Buddhism it's emphasized even more in Vajrayana Buddhism even more than that in the Pali Canon in in, in Buddha Dharma um, and uh, in Islam and in Kabbalistic teachings in Judaism and uh, other traditions, um, there are actually uh, many worlds. So there's not just one world, and that one that world is just like this. Actually, there are many worlds. Oftentimes, there's a hierarchy involved in a lot of these um, cosmological systems, if you like, cosmolo- cosmologies. Um, the, but the idea that there are many worlds, and um, the 
what matter is in these worlds and what the bodies are uh, is different from world to world. Uh, uh, in e each world has its own, if you like, kind of matter or uh, or appearance of matter or appearance of body, put it that way. And different laws, different, if you like, physical laws, different even even psychological and spiritual laws. So Chaim Vitali was a um, a Kabbalist, a Jewish Kabbalist. Um, I think in uh, in um, he, he was a, a, one of the students of Isaac Luria, um, and he he writes of the, an infinity of coexisting worlds, an infinity of coexisting worlds, and he also writes. He has we maybe come back to this that every soul has a root in each world. So in a way, um, all these coexisting worlds and if you like levels of uh, world and existence and every every one of us, every being, every soul has a root uh, in each of those worlds, therefore has infinite roots. So again here, this um, interplay, this codependent arising, this co-involvement of self and the world. Actually, just as a sort of footnote here to clarify, and particularly for <clears throat> those of you who have a little familiarity with some of the ideas and trends in modern physics over the last 50 years or so, um, I want to distinguish this idea of many worlds, of infinite worlds, um, that Chaim Bital and, and many others in, in many spiritual traditions um, write and have written and talked about over the centuries, uh, distinguish that idea from an, <coughs> an idea, a theory that is um, still around, is still somewhat popular in modern physics, uh, what's, which is sometimes called the many worlds interpretation or the multiple universes theory according to which there are uncountable, innumerable, parallel, separate parallel universes, just like our own, uh, some of which are microscopically close to, uh, to the, this universe that we are in, um, and some of which are a little bit more different and some really quite divergent, so that in in many of these universes, uncountably many, I am giving this same talk, um, but there's just something very slightly different in in the, like microscopically different in the in the delivery. And you are listening, but there's something uh, perhaps uh, in in one of these universes or many of the universes something very slightly different in in your listening or the processes that go on in your mind or <coughs> or something else as you're listening. And some will be more um, uh, more dissimilar, quite divergent. Um, so in some, you may have listened to a certain point and then got, uh, I don't know, a little fed up and decided to switch on the TV and now are happily watching The Simpsons or whatever. Um, and, and in many of these universes, um, I, I never made it to give the talk for whatever reason. And maybe... Uh, Maybe I died a long time ago, um, or or you never made it to listen for for whatever reason. But right now, and in parallel to this universe, this universe that we find ourselves in, are as I said, innumerable, countless um, other universes, um, 
uh, where that, that differ either very, very slightly, infinitesimally slightly, or um, or quite widely from this one. So that's a different idea. This idea of what's called the many worlds interpretation in modern physics is a different idea than what Chaim Vital and others are talking about. Because that more, if you like, spiritual version, the, the, the mystical kind of cosmopoesis of Chaim Vital and um, the other traditions, in Islamic traditions and, and um, Christian and lots of traditions, um, that involves, differs in two ways, because that involves... One, a kind of verticality, if you like. There's a verticality um, implicit in, in, in the idea of, of the cosmos and the arrangement of these worlds. There's a dimensionality, a hierarchy, we might say, and oftentimes it is um, presented and uh, um, structured as a hierarchy. There's a hierarchy of, of these worlds, often in, in the presentations <coughs> of this mystical idea. That's a word... Uh, I, f- I personally feel okay with it, but I think teaching now in our culture in these kind of situations, I want to be quite cautious with that idea because it often brings um, a lot of assumptions and baggage and dualisms, etc. But in this idea of Chaim Vital's and in the Kabbalistic tradition and other traditions, there's a verticality, a hierarchy of the, of the cosmos, a hierarchy of these worlds. So that's one difference. And the second is um, these other worlds that Chaim Vital uh, and others um, allude to or, or describe or point to um, are not separate uh, from each other or from this here, um, from this world and this moment. Uh, this is as I would conceive that idea. So this this dimensionality, this verticality, is not is not the same as separate uh, universes sort of trundling on and unfolding in parallel on their divergent paths. There's a couple of differences there, but um, it's worth actually just just dwelling here a little bit in this sort of yeah, extended footnote, if you like. Um, I wonder if this is actually. Uh, this this idea in modern physics that what's called the many worlds interpretation is actually really qualifies as a theory at all um, or more of a conjecture um, in terms of scientific paradigm I don't know as far as I understand I don't think it's possible to ever devise an experiment to discover if it's true or not and and because you can't ever find out if it's true this idea I'm not sure whether that constitutes uh, what could be called a theory. Um, so this conjecture, as I said, is, is different anyway. Um, and as I said, no notion of verticality and, and the separateness of these worlds, two major differences. But but about that, the fact of, of this conjecture and where that idea came from in modern physics, I, th- I think historically it arose as... Um, one attempt to avoid um, the possible consequences or explanation of results that were happening, happening, uh, and, and discovered results that were discovered in in, um, in subatomic physics experiments, which seemed to show the, uh, or rather, the plain reading, the obvious reading, um, rather radical reading, but. Um, 
in, in I would say, the simplest reading, would show the dependence of the observed on the observation. So what is observed, um, what uh, the nature of what is observed is dependent on the observation, on the way of looking. So I look in one way, I see a wave. The scientist looks in another way, uh, sees a particle. So the, ob- the kind of observation will determine what is observed. In, in, in quantum theory, prior to observation, all we can talk about is what's called a, a probability function or, or a, a waveform. Uh, there, are, there isn't a distinct thing with distinct properties. Uh, an electron or, or a proton or whatever it is exists more as a kind of um, a, a probability wave. Um, probability of being here or there um, or way over there of velocity this or that um, occurring at this or that time with so much energy all of this is not so to speak um, discrete defined um, determined but exists as, as a kind of smudge or wave of probabilities of having this position or being here or there etc etc so in that, if you like, the, the very thingness of its thing and its most basic properties, um, what it is, wave or particle, when it is, when it occurs, and, and where it is, the, the most basic properties depend on the way of looking. Um, and this isn't because of a disturbance or inaccuracy due to um, the observational apparatus or the process of observation, is a fundamental indeterminacy of, of things at, at, a ba- at a very basic level in the universe. Um, there is no, in other words, there is no objective reality to things independent of observation and the, and the, and the way of looking and the approach of, 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 uh, of observation. But that that uh, conclusion to conclude that somehow the way of looking, um, the, the perception or even consciousness, um, on the one hand, and the world, matter, etc., um, are interdependent. The way of looking and the world, the consciousness and matter, perception and matter are interdependent and not separate. That uh, matter, its appearance, its behavior, and its properties depend on uh, the way of looking, the approach, the conception, the consciousness, the perception. It's just slightly different, but um, that dependency, that idea of the interdependence of world and observation of matter and way of looking, if you like, that is so outside of the very ideas that formed the basis of the scientific revolution centuries ago. For instance, the ideal and uh, the, the possibility of observation free of bias. That's a, that's a fundamental scientific sort of um, ideal that we can observe things objectively, free of bias. 
and that we can discover um, there is an objective independent existence of things which we can discover if we um, are able to observe free of bias, which we can. And the whole separation, so there's two notions, and the third notion, the whole separation, if you like, an independence of mind and matter, uh, stemming uh, a thing championed by Descartes, who divided existence into res cogitans and res extensa. Res cogitans means the mind, the cognitive thing, the cognitive function, the mind, and res extensa, matter extended in space. So these ideas possibility, the ideal and the possibility of observation free of bias, the objective independent existence of things which can be discovered in that way, and the um, separation and duality, if you like, of mind and matter, fundamental ideas that underpinned classical science um, and allowed its progress, wonderful, amazing progress, but somewhere along the line, they became, uh, for many, if not most, um, dogmas, beliefs about the nature of reality. And, and with that, there, there is a fear for many still that without these kind of assumptions, there can be no science. Without um, the idea of an objective independent existence of things that can be discovered and the distinction between mind and matter, there can be no science. Without them, the whole edifice of science will crumble. So, how to save science and save those beliefs? Uh, different different um, postulations, if you like, different conjectures. Rather than the idea of the way of looking of the observer, um, if you like, determining... Um, uh, whether whether we see a particle or a wave, whether it's here or there, etc. There is the conjecture that both the particle and the wave exist, or in one universe it's a particle, in uh, another universe it's a wave, in one it's over here, uh, and in another it's over there, in uh, or in a third place, or very very far out in the in another place, all anything that is um, rem- even remotely probable according to this smudge of probability in, in, in the mathematical waveform, anything that is rem- even remotely possible, that each, each t- uh, possibility will exist in one of these parallel separate universes in, in the you know, modern physics idea of the m- many worlds interpretation. It's only one idea, by the way, among among others, and as I said, you can't really prove it, and uh, it's not certainly not popular with everyone. Uh, I'm not sure whether it's the observation that actually causes the universe to fork, fork or split, perhaps in some versions, or just that these universes already exist, and in each one um, we have uh, a particular version of... Um, reality, if you like, a particular outcome of what might be seen in our universe as as a probability prior to observation. So there are these um, multiple universes in this many worlds interpretation of modern physics, 
innumerable universes running, if you like, in parallel, separate, without any interaction between these universes. But all of them, each of these innumerable universes, has objective, independent existence. And um, each thing, uh, whether it's a a large thing or the smallest uh, subatomic particle, has objective, independent existence. As I said, that idea is... um, not uh, popular with all modern physicists at all, and some would regard it as kind of a kind of baroque idea, really. Uh, and as one physicist whose name I can't remember said, this is very heavy baggage. This idea of um, uh, multiple universes, multiple parallel, separate universes, very heavy baggage. Uh, he wrote for not entertaining the uh, idea of the interdependence of um, the way of looking or consciousness on uh, on things, if you like. So refusing to entertain the idea that seems so um, uh, dangerous to the fundaments of scientific paradigm. Um, when we refuse to entertain that c- conclusion uh, from from the quantum experiments, etc., then we have we have to carry this very heavy baggage uh, of of this many worlds uh, interpretation of modern physics. We might say in Dharma language the um, the the cost of not entertaining or not uh, opening to a view of the emptiness of objective of an objective independent reality. Is, is this kind of um, very heavy baggage of this idea. And again, it seems to me it's a conjecture, uh, so therefore I'm not even sure if it comes in the realm of science. But there are, there are other possibilities, and, and one of which is, is more entertaining, something more akin to the idea of emptiness in, in Dharma teachings. So it's not necessary, this uh, idea, uh, that, that is still kicking around 50, 60 years after it was first proposed in 1957 um, in, in the modern physics world. But, again, just to make clear, Chaim Vital and others uh, um, in different spiritual traditions through the centuries are talking about something very different here than this modern, modern physics notion. There's verticality, dimensionality, possibly hierarchy, and there is not the separation um, of these worlds from each other or from this one here. And if you just let these um, ideas, fantasies really, images, um, uh, these two, the one is the more, if you like, spiritual cosmopoiesis, and the other is the more... um, if you like, flat conjecture of uh, abounds with with some modern physicists. You actually just um, go back and forth between them and let them resonate, echo, reverberate, and have their effects in the soul. I would say one notices quite different effects on the soul in the soul of entertaining each of these ideas about the cosmos. One. Uh, because of the dimensionality and the verticality and the non-separateness, seems to me to uh, to be to be an idea that is soul-making, 
an image of fantasy, a cosmopoiesis of its soul-making. The other, because of its flatness, um, its separateness, etc., of the separateness of these uh, multiple parallel universes, uh, does not give rise to the same uh, soul-making. Or any soul-making, really, may give rise to a lot of um, science fiction and, and that kind of thing, or a strange, uh, other strange sort of um, existential notions or feelings, but not so much to soul-making. Anyway, that was, in some senses, a footnote, uh, but worth, I think, making the distinction. So many of, of uh, the main religious traditions of the world, the spiritual traditions and uh, practices, um, have this idea in, in the cosmology, in the cosmopoiesis, of many worlds. And also, if you like, many levels of body, and you get this in Tantrism, whether it's Buddhist or Hindu, in Sufism, etc., levels of the body. So yes, there's this physical body, and then there's the... Um, ethereal body or the body of light or the subtle body or whatever and these different kind of levels of the body if you like um, conform to the different worlds that we were just talking about so if you like each level of body or each kind of body has its own world or its own earth that if you like it inhabits so that's um, sometimes implicit in the kind of metaphysics that runs and and the cosmology that runs through a lot of these ideas. Now, sometimes historically, uh, especially for the people who practiced um, in these traditions, and and really what I want to emphasize, what we want to emphasize on on this retreat, is that ideas, for instance, of the pure land uh, in in Buddhism, or uh, you may have heard about, or Buddha realms, or uh, uh, the world as mandala, or whatever, um, that is here now. We're not talking about something um, separate. It's here now. So again, we're talking about perception. We're talking about experience. So this is possible to experience, to experience, to see this right now, the room that you are sitting in right now, this around me right now, and and myself can be experienced as a Buddha realm. So this, um, there's not a separation in in somehow in space or time or, 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 or somehow these levels are not separate, they're here now. What we're talking about, the whole thing, the whole basis I want to put all this on is what we could call phenomenological, um, experiential. It's to do with practice. Um, we're not just talking about what's, what's derogatory, derogatorily often called speculative metaphysics, just like fancy ideas about cosmology that bear no relationship with anything that can actually be experienced. Um, and sometimes, um, phenomenologically, in, in others, in our experience, we experience a kind of hierarchy. If you like, it can feel like that. It doesn't have to. Doesn't have to, but it can feel like. Certainly, there are levels. There are levels of perception that are available to us as human beings. This pure lands, Buddha realms, whatever you want, whatever language you want to, you want to call it, different worlds can be experienced. 
and different bodies. Different bodies are different holes, different sense of the body. So the Buddha talks about in in the Pali Canon. Uh, I'm not sure if this is in in the long version of the Satipatthana Sutta. I can't remember, but um, it's in the Samana Pala Sutta, the fruits of the homeless life. And the Buddha talks about the me- the skilled meditator creating a mind made body, um, and that body is a kind of etheric body, if you like, there's an awareness of that, and that can, if, if, if the meditator wants, be sort of separated in location and fly off and do, have all kinds of adventures, and a whole um, sensorium, a whole uh, experience, it can have separate from the location of the physical body. So the Buddha talks about that. Um, and 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 some of you listening to this will know that as an experience in in lots of different forms it can happen in lots of different ways. But I remember a, 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 someone on retreat just talking. She was sitting in the lounge having a cup of tea, and then a blue light body kind of unsheathed itself. That's also the word the Buddha used. Unsheathed itself um, from from her physical body, and she was sitting there. Um, quietly in the library, and she watched this body, this blue light body, walk to the other side of the room. Uh, and with with practice, I, you know, I don't want to emphasize this as a it's necessarily important possibility, but but this kind of thing can arise very spontaneously. And there's no uh, sense of like it was some kind of schizoid um, break or some kind of you know. Um, breakdown in her mental... She was just calmly watching this experience. It did, did uh, arouse her interest, let's say. But uh, it was nothing freaky. It was actually a very peaceful, beautiful experience. And it's something that can be trained with certain states of meditation. It becomes just uh, something that's very available and very enjoyable and a whole other dimension of, of bodies. So these... Um, Phenomenologically speaking, it's a phenomenological fact. It's a fact of our experience or, or of what appears to us, um, of our perception that there are levels, um, if you if you want to think hierarchically, or, or a multiplicity of perception and experiences are available to us. Um, that is a fact. So we can argue about metaphysics and dismiss something as metaphysics, but as human beings... There is that fact that um, range or multiplicity, or if you if you okay with that, would, uh, levels of perception are of experience are available to us, and um, and we can train in opening to uh, uh, to those different levels and extending the range in inhabiting all all that etc. Perceiving more clearly, feeling more fully as a part of the training and the flexibility of ways of looking, why harp on about that, and part of the training of what meditation is, when you see it that way, is opening up this, um, recognizing this phenomenological fact. And this I cannot argue with. Now, someone might be listening and they say, well, that's not my experience. And I'm sorry, but I, w- I would just say, well, you need to practice a little more um, before you go um, making uh, those uh, or extending that claim, that's not real. Practice a little more. Open up your experience through practice. Now, of course, I probably that person needs to be taught to practice in certain ways, to open up their practice and also their view of practice. And that's what, what I harped on about earlier on. To, you know, we also, not, it's not just about meditate more. It's I need to meditate in certain ways. 
and I need to frame and conceive of what meditation is in terms of sort of fabrication, ways of looking dependent arising, and without actually um, presuming, as often is the case, as I said, when people talk about fabrication, yeah, yeah, that kind of thing is fabricated. When I'm really in papancha, when I'm really um, believing this crazy thought that, I, that I'm having of self-hate or whatever, I realize that's a fabrication, but other stuff is real. So what happens when I don't make that? I'm just open in my exploration of fabrication. Who knows what's fabricated and not? Let's find out. Let's find out by playing with, uh, pl- viewing meditation a certain way and exploring, exp- developing the ways of looking and then see what's fabricated in terms of experience. And someone might hear all this about uh, phenomenal phenomenological fact, experiential fact, availability to experience of different worlds and different levels, and actually experience that, I mean this is probably much rarer, rarer, and experience um, even the dependent arising, that when I look this way I see that, this is the perception, such so experience all these levels of perception, and still, I mean I think if it's a one-off, um, they might question it, but as it becomes more and more just, oh, I really see this over and over again in lots of different ways, this dependent rising, this dependency on the ways of looking and how perception is fabricated. see that a lot. But let's say theoretically that still, um, after all that, through the, you know exploration and meditation and still um, uh, holds to, clings to this idea that reality is one-dimensional in this kind of modernist way, then, then what? Then I would say, I don't want to dwell on this now, but I would just put this out as, as a question. Um, then what happens is one needs to, uh, we need to expose and question the epistemological assumptions of, of that person clinging to that position. Because what's, what's happening and what are they assuming about what constitutes valid knowledge? What are they assuming about what knowledge um, can be trusted? They're not trusting their own experience. This is a person who's hypothetically been through all this and seen this in meditation. Then what are you trusting as valid knowledge and why? So you can see these philosophical questions, they can sound so abstract, but you see how it's absolutely, um, not at the core, but at the basis of all that we're talking about. They're in, it's inevitable to someone, to, these questions and, and, and these uh, what are you know reaching these walls and actually starting to question these walls there uh, or these grounds these assumptions um, is inevitable for someone who questions their existence deeply who looks wants to look deeply in into their existence they're inevitable if we want to really open up um, uh, or, or even question whether or not uh, you know there is a basis for reenchantment for cosmic oasis for all that so what are the um, assumptions epistemologically about knowing, etc. Not trusting my own experience in this uh, case of this hypothetical person. What then am I trusting and why? Am I just trusting the view that happens to be most popular in the cultures that I move in at the time that I happen to be alive? The common view. When a little reflection will show that most people hold that view without, without, as I said in another talk, without having thought about the whole thing much at all, or explored the whole thing, um, either intellectually or, or experientially. 
or again, am I trusting so-called science? But actually what I mean by that, or what's assumed in that, is, is, is really quite an outmoded version of science and the scientific approach. Or am I just trusting my inclinations because I have a certain predisposition to a certain view? Why should I trust my predispositions? Why do I assume that they're right? Or is it fear? I'm actually afraid of opening up the worldview, perhaps because I feel safe in the little container that I've constructed for myself without realizing it. Perhaps I'm afraid of the implications of, 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 of a widening of the view. But at any rate, either it's a question of developing the meditation, thinking about the meditation, framing it, conceiving of what, the, what on earth is meditation, and opening up that frame or framing it in a certain way that allows this whole thing, allows space and air and actual movement in terms of these um, openings of perception and, and these questions. Either it's a matter of that or it's a question of questioning my assumptions about um, knowledge and what's called epistemology, how I can know anything and what is valid knowledge. But what I really want to emphasize here, uh, over and above all this, is, is the phenomenology in other words, that all, all these um, ideas and cosmologies or many worlds or flat world or whatever it is, bodies, excuse me, um, can we bring it back to practice and experimenting? So the whole thing is um, a phenomenological exploration. It's an exploration of our experience, of our perception, of what appears to us and how, in other words, a Bring it back to practice. So, for example, with regard to the body, I can experience, uh, I can look at the body in a way that sees it as a field of sensation. And this is, in, in terms of insight meditation, that's the most normal way. I can see and experience it, approach it through a way of looking that, that reveals the energy body. Uh, so that, that becomes the appearance, as we've been uh, emphasizing on this retreat. I can see, experience, feel, uh, and perceive the body as, um, you know, an Im imaginal, imbued with image, or, or the imaginal body as theophany as well. The body as theophany, my body, your body, as theophany, as face of God, face of the divine. And I can approach and have a way of looking at the body um, that has actually different kinds of conception of organic matter. And again, it could be through um, molecular or genetic or evolutionary or, you know, all, all kinds of conceptions of what organic matter is. And, and there are others, too, that are not so quite so reductionist, etc. But phenomenology, as a philosophical enterprise, phenomenology always includes conceptions. And some, some philosophers, I think, don't quite realize this. Um, they, 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 they believe in, in the possibility of just having a view without any conceptual conceptuality involved in this a sort of pre-conceptual view of things and it's quite common again in spiritual traditions just being don't think as if we can have this naked naked phenomenology naked view or naked experience of things always i say and i've harped on about this in other talks other retreats but always 
uh, appearance, phenomena, perception, experience um, involves conceptions. Perception involves conception. Most of the time, very subtle, not even fully conscious. And in terms, if we just stay with that, that range uh, or that example of some some of the range of ways we can um, practice with ways of looking at, at our body and sensing our body, maybe there's a hierarchy there for you in those. And you can organize them into some kind of hierarchy or you feel there's a hierarchy, but not necessarily. It doesn't need to be. And again, there's a flexibility of conception uh, that I would favor and... Um, just reading recently about Plotinus and Neoplatonism, Neop- 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 um, how there was in, in his in his way of teaching to this flexibility of, of conceptualization. So sometimes he talked about matter as if it was a kind of illusion far from God, the furthest emanation of the divine. And other times it's actually, you no know, matter is equally divine. Everything is equally divine. They're just different transformations of divinity, if you like, of the substance of divinity. So complex and, for me, amenable to flexibility of conception. There's a... Most of you know what pantheism means. It means God is... Um, is Everything is God equally it god is if you like nothing else but what what uh, what exists so matter is god and, and that's kind of it uh, actually it's probably different versions but but then there's something called panentheism which uh includes the idea that there's if you like again a level of god a level of perception which transcends appearance so there's um yes all matter is divine all matter is imbued with divinity. Everything in the world is imbued with divinity. And there's also a dimension, if you like, to the divine that's uh, the unfabricated, the transcendent, that's beyond matter, actually beyond all appearance, all um, object and thingness. in relation to uh, mindfulness of the body and what we were just touching on, um, you know, when people often think about mindfulness of the body, the first foundation of mindfulness, as I said, they, they tend to think in our world of physical sensations and wrapped up with that is usually um, either the rhetoric or the implicit assumptions that when I'm with my physical sensations, I'm with the immediate reality. Immediate meaning there's nothing getting in the way, no concepts, nothing. This is just the immediate reality of things. And one's not seeing that way, um, that uh, mode of approaching things as a way of looking. It's taken as the immediate reality and not as a way of looking. You understand? And if I (coughs) assume that, And if I see that kind of mindfulness of the body as immediate reality and not as just another way of looking, then the whole talk of the energy body is just like, well, that's just something you're imagining or dreaming or believing. It's it's a fabrication, whereas the other one is not a fabrication. The sensations are not a fabrication. Actually, they're both um, modes of approaching practice. They're both ways of looking. Both of these are ways of looking. They're both modes of, of mindfulness of the body. And a deeper exploration of emptiness and fabrication of perception also sees the fabrication of sensation through clinging, through conception.
So, in regards, just you know, about the energy body and in relation to these different kinds of body, we're talking about the energy body. We've been emphasizing it because uh, going back to the opening evening, we're talking about uh, the opening morning, um, because it provides us with. Um, a manifold, a multiplicity of resources for lots of different kind of practices in lots of different ways. I'm not going to repeat that um, here. That's why we've been emphasizing it. But also, it provides us with one strand, one possibility among others of uh, a way in which the body and the sense of the body can be re-enchanted. The energy body provides us one strand among others of of a way that the re- of ways that the re the, uh, there can be a re-enchantment of the body, meaning it's not essentially, truly, the nature of the body is not just matter, just molecules and genes and all that, but there's depth, dimensionality, there is um, this availability to perception of a subtle body, a body of light, a body of energy, and that um, that uh, dimensionality, that that more subtle body, if you like, or the energy body is um, connected to and integrated with the cosmos, but not only in the sort of uh, modern materialist ways of conceiving as, of course, I'm integrated into the cosmos because I exchange atoms with it through eating and uh, going to the toilet and through breathing in and out. I'm connected with the cosmos that way. That's fine and that's great and that's important. But the ways that the subtle body or the energy body might be perceived to be connected with and integrated into the cosmos are um, are different than that. And there's dimensions and depths of that. I'm not going to go into that. It's to be explored in practice, to be discovered in practice. So all of this, this question of matter, bodies, worlds, and all of it, we could say we're in the business of uh, alchemy. All this uh, has very much to do with what we could, uh, a way of conceiving what alchemy is. I hope I don't need to say that alchemy is not a sort of pre-chemistry, it was not a pre-chemistry that people were trying to convert lead to gold so that they could get rich. Um, uh, You know, it's like, that's a certain view of alchemy. I'm not talking about that at all. I, 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 I um, doubt that for most serious alchemists that was at all uh, what was involved. Alchemy, as I've touched on before, as rather, if you like, a transubstantiation of matter, of world, of body, etc. But this transubstantiation, this uh, transformation of the substance of things is something that happens in and through perception. So uh, when we talk about alchemy, we're talking about the realm of perception, uh, of, of our sense of things. And this transubstantiation is available to us in all of the six senses. So yes, through sight, yes, through sound, yes, through touch, through the footfall um, uh, and the touch of the foot on, on the floor or on the ground, on the earth, um, say, in, as we walk, or in the walking meditation or whatever, there can be an alchemy available um, uh, that's arrived at through any of the six senses. And then again, it might spread to the other senses. So, for example, in touch, 
um, what's characteristic of this transubstantiation is that the 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 one touched, the person touched, or the object touched, whether that's the earth or or some other um, ob- object or or person, um, the one touched or the object touched and the one touching uh, are or feel to be transubstantiated together. Again, we're back to the self-world thing. Because subject and object are never separate um, uh, as they appear to be. The nature of the fabrication of perception is subject and object get fabricated together. There's a mutual dependency, mutual codependency of their arising. So someone, I can't remember where it's from, um, defined alchemy or summed it up as the spiritualization of matter and the materialization of spirit. The spiritualization of matter and the materialization of spirit. And they said, that's, that's what alchemy is. But when we talk about this transubstantiation, this, um, if you like, making divine um, of, uh, of matter, or this realization of the divinity of the substance of matter, of world, of body, etc., this um, has d- d- different uh, images and metaphors for that in alchemy, which we don't need to go into. But this transubstantiation, this is really, really important now. Um, this transubstantiation doesn't necessarily involve or mean or imply a making ethereal in the perception, a making ethereal, making uh, less solid, or making translucent or luminous or any of that, the, the perception. In other words, there can be this, um, this uh, transubstantiation, and uh, yes, of course, one option is that I'm looking and the world feels, seems to me, luminous, um, ethereal, less solid. That's actually very common. But it's only one option. Because also there's the possibility that the very density um, and, if you like, what, what people used to call the darkness of matter or the sleep of matter, that is spiritualized. Materialization of spirit right there in that density, in that non-translucence, in that solidity, that solidity itself is not transformed, is not changed to something more ethereal. The solidity, the density, the darkness, whatever you want to call it, is is itself infused with a sense of divinity without the object, whether it's body or matter or world or this object or that, without that becoming lighter and brighter. So there's this transubstantiation in the, the very sense of density and solidity. It's, it's, it's rendered, that very density and solidity is rendered divine. Again, going back to w- w- what we're trying to do here in the broader picture, we're opening and extending the sense of sacredness. So sacredness doesn't always look like white light or light or translucence or ethereality or whatever. We're opening and extending the sense of sacredness um, to uh, to everything eventually and all forms and all perceptions. And as we emphasized before, all this, this transubstantiation, this alchemy <coughs> of perception is, we're regarding it as art. It's an art. 
so for example, when we talk about um, seeing the world, seeing the surroundings, seeing the environment now um, as, as uh, a Deva realm or a Buddha realm, as the palace of a Buddha or a holy mandala, sacred mandala, and, and practicing that right, or either that arising spontaneously through practice. Yes, there's a way of approaching that, and then very valid and, and lovely, where, um, for example, in the mandala, um, each location, uh, it, it, there's an exact um, symbology, and, and the detail of all that um, is important to the way of practicing. And that's, that's great, and that's fine. On this retreat, we're emphasizing, in the art of it, a much looser approach, um, much more poetic, if you like, uh, or potentially more creative, more open. Um, so it's less formulaic, less not necessarily less precise, but less 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 formulaic, let's say. And it may be precise or it may be vague. But involved in that, in that art of feeling the world as Deva realm, as as the palace of a Buddha, as the mandala, or whatever you what, what language you want to use. Um, what's what's involved in that um, in that in that art is is the sense of all of it being sacred. Um, it's, again, more than the typical modernist view of matter. Something is transubstantiated in and through the perception. But that includes, if we're talking now about mandalas and all that, it includes um, a sense of the geometry, a sense of um, the space and the actual configuration of the space is not something that's kind of dissolved or transcendent. I'm not just talking about being in a field of white light, kind of homogenous, everything dissolves in that. Objects are not faded. I mean, that's a valid uh, meditative experience and direction, of course. But in, in this kind of per- perception of the world around me as mandala, it's not that the objects are faded or I'm replacing one um, perception of an object with a very different one. But things have their space. The space is set up in the same way. The geometry of the space is set up as we perceive it usually. Um, but the, the matter and, and the space itself is given this and or, or um, felt to have this uh, dimensionality, verticality. So that's part of the art of this um, inhabiting a mandala, this cosmopoesis. Or again, when we, when we do the exercise of, of um, hearing all sounds as mantra, to quote a tantric um, instruction. Um, again, we can do it in, the, in a sort of very precise way with all the, with, with, with some set of very precisely defined symbology wrapped up with the, um, <clears throat> with the uh, syllables of the mantra. Or we can do it in a much looser way, a much creative, a much more create, personally creative way. So on this retreat, that's more what we're favouring in this art of alchemy. Okay, so just a couple more things. Um, I mentioned time before. So wrapped up in this whole notion of cosmopoesis, the whole notion of worlds and what the world is or how we perceive the world or different worlds, um, is the whole notion of time. Um, so through practice, either through um, going deeply into um, e- emptiness practices, um, that's one avenue. And um, that 
or another avenue through going deeply into this art of, of cosmopoesis and, and the imaginal. So two avenues there, but both of them um, will eventually, and um, in the case of the cosmopoesis, probably sooner rather than later, but, but it, it, it's variable. And both of these avenues um, will open up um, our conceptions and our perceptions of time. So going the direction of um, deep insight meditation practice via emptiness um, and, and this exploration of unfabricating, of fabricating, uh, the fabrication and unfabrication of perception dependent on way of looking that way, eventually one will um, uh, have experiences of timelessness. And they can happen in all kinds of different ways. I'm not going to dwell on it here, but just to say that. And eventually there's the possibility of of not fabricating. There is the cessation of the fabrication of perception. No perception, no thing, no self, no other, no object, uh, no space, no time, no event. Um, one, this this is a, if you like, realm or sphere, ayatana, as the Buddha called it, completely transcendent to all conventional experiences beyond time. Um, uh, there is no continuity of time there. There's, there's nothing like that. So uh, that's possible. This completely transcendent experience uh, beyond time of, of timelessness beyond any perception. There's also possible through this um, deep emptiness practice and um, perceptions of that kind of uh, level or that kind of timelessness, but in and through the, per- the perceptions we have of time of things happening in this world in time. So kind of the timelessness sort of shines through and we sort of have this, again, a multi-dimensionality available to consciousness. Yes, of course this thing is happening in time and at the very same, uh, in the very same perception, if you like, there's a sense of the timelessness of this moment, of this perception, of this thing, of all of that. So these kinds of, this is what's available to us um, through... uh, Deepening in what I would call insight meditation um, as the as the way of exploring um, fabrication, etc., and unfabricating will issue in this, and it can happen spontaneously in in meditation. Some of that can happen spontaneously. Um, so that's one avenue, and the second avenue is what we're emphasizing more in this retreat is the avenue of the imaginal and the cosmopoesis, etc., and that practice. And I've talked about this in other other talks, other retreats. It's like how there can be a sense then of um, of the um, timelessness of an image, um, because the image is kind of iconic, um, and there's there's a sense of eternity, of the eternality of what one perceives, whether that is. Um, the world that one perceives in cosmopoesis, or this particular image, or this dimension of a being or a relationship, um, there's a sense of it happening, if you like, in in a different time. Uh, so Corbett has the phrase hierophanic time, meaning the, the the appearance of the sacred, literally two Greek words, hierosacred, phanic. Um, uh, appearance, um, face. Uh, so he talks about the imaginal realm, events in hierophanic time. So this 
image that touches me so deeply, that seems so soul-making, it has a sense it's happening in another time and eternally. Uh, Alex Wayman, who writes, uh, he's a Buddhist writer, I'm not sure if he's still alive, but um, wrote a lot uh, about Tantra and uh, translated some Tantras, uh, talks about fruitional time or great time in contrast to, I think he uses in contrast to basic time. So our usual sense of time, linear, unfolding, um, time passing, etc., um, impermanence and all that is what I think what he uses the word basic time for that, in contrast to what he calls fruitional time or great time. And this is the sense of time or the time of the imaginal realm, the time of the Sambhogakaya, if you, again, if you, to mention that uh, word from Vajrayana Buddhism, Mahayana Buddhism. Um, uh, the, the 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 world of the imaginal having its own kind of time, which is, if you like, an eternal time, a timeless time, an iconic um, presentation of the events and the images um, that take place in the Sambhogakaya, in the imaginal realm. And, you know, I think why, why Alex Wayman calls it fruitional is because, if you like, that is... Um, on the one hand, a fruit of awakening. In other words, this this is part of the perception of an awakened one, a Buddha or a Bodhisattva who's had certain um, levels of insight, of realization into emptiness, etc. It opens up both the, the sense of timelessness in the first sense that I was using, but also this sense of the um, eternity uh, and the sense of timelessness that imbues um, as I said, images and events, etc., in the imaginal realm, in the Sambhogakaya. It opens up the Sambhogakaya, in fact, which is characterized by a sense of eternality, of timelessness, to the images, appearances, events there. But it will also happen uh, as, as a fruit just of practicing imaginally, eventually. We recognize Sometimes it needs to be pointed out to us, but we recognize that the images, the perceptions, have a kind of timelessness to them. And so this, um, if you like, this, again, multiple levels of our sense of time become available to us and accessible to us and, and regularly accessible and easily available as perceptions. Different kinds of timelessness just become part of how we see the world and not only in a tra- in when we're in a state of transcendence but actually in and through the very appearance of things yes of course of course there's time of course there's a the perception of time and one deals with that and one relates to that but at the very in the very same appearance is this dimension of timelessness or dimensions different kinds of timelessness so this is all is wrapped up in this whole notion <clears throat> or whole possibility of experiencing worlds and imaginal realms. Going back to <clears throat> the theologian I mentioned, uh, Walter Wink, said the ascension of Christ, or the resurrection of Christ, these these are happening in another realm, if you like, in the imaginal realm, and that's always available, and always accessible, as I pointed out. Why? Because there's a kind of eternality there. It's always happening. So sometimes 
sense of timelessness, um, either through through an exploration of um, maybe maybe through certain explorations or certain ways of approaching insight meditation, there will be an an experience of a timeless realm of something separate, um, as I said, and dualistic with this this world, the world of appearances. Um, that can happen. Um, in a way, what needs to happen then is a deeper understanding of emptiness. Or there can be this kind of separation and dualism between, let's say, the imaginal realm and this realm, this world. Um, so it, that might ha- happen but uh, experientially, but eventually, um, or sooner or later, um, these worlds, this multiplicity of worlds that's available to us in cosmopoesis, and these um, multiple dimensions in our perception of time, time and timelessness, um, again, they are here now, so to speak, available in the appearance of this world, this moment, all this existence. Not separate, not dualistic, not, not only transcendent. Back to the panentheism thing. Yes, there is the capacity for transcendence beyond all experience, beyond matter, form, and all that. And there's the possibility of the perception, the experience, here, now, in and through, and in and through also all the particulars, not just dissolving things. So that non-duality, non-separation of these worlds, of, 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 of these um, levels of perception, these realities, dimensions, and non-separation of time and the timeless, um, all of that can be here, now, available, not separate, not dualistic. The last thing, you know, regarding the way our practice evolves, or the way we, let's say, the way we evolve towards that realization of non-duality of all this, or the availability, or the inclusion all this of all these these different levels and dimensions and worlds and um, uh, levels of time etc levels of experience of time the way we move towards that more uh, integrated or or um, uh, yes the experience of that as integrated into this uh, this very appearance now or in, inherent in, available in, present in, present to perception, to experience, in and through this very appearance, not as separate. The evolution to that availability um, in practice, in, in, in our sense of existence, to that non-separation, to that non-duality, the evolution of that, it might be um, that um, duality or, or a separating out of, of what is sacred from what is profane um, is is actually maybe for some people a necessary stage. So it's interesting, everyone would like to um, uh, go and oftentimes to jump to a view of everything is sacred. And and of course, um, if, you, if you, you know, I would say maybe that's a more mature view, it is, a, I would say, a more mature view, and that's what we're interested in, that spreading, as I said, of the sacred, of the sense of the sacred, the senses of the sacred. So that's great. Everything is sacred as an idea. Um, but oftentimes, if that um, as an idea is, is again, just, just, just words, or it's not deeply um, based and, and, and uh, a fruit of, of deep and consistent um, uh, exploration in practice, 
it's just an idea, um, and sometimes it's even a secular kind of idea. What happens is that um, actually everything sacred experientially really drifts or slips or becomes uh, nowhere, nothing is sacred. So sometimes uh, many of us, or some, some, are actually helped by kind of, if you like, deliberately circumscribing um, this is sacred, or this place is sacred. Um, so this temple, there's a, there's um, the, the the precincts of the temple, and within those, within that, um, uh, those borders, it's sacred space. Or we create sacred space somehow or other, perhaps through ritual, perhaps something or other. We conjure. We enchant this space and it becomes sacred. And we're in it and there's an out of it. There's a duality there. Or people making a pilgrimage. You know, um, The classical way of thinking about pilgrimage is um, that place that I'm making a pilgrimage to is sacred. And that's why I'm making the pilgrimage there. It's special. It's different. In a way, it's other. So what, what I want to say is... Um, you know, we have to be practical with all this. I'm really interested in practice, in development, in the evolution, if you like, of perception, of experience, and what's available and what makes a difference in our existence, in our life. Um, and sometimes, for for us, or for some some of us, or many of us, perhaps, um, a, a, a separate separating out of the sacred deliberately, caringly, um, and giving that uh, more sanctity or approaching it with more sanctity is actually a stage um, on, on the way to perceiving everything as sacred. So I just want to acknowledge that and actually leave room for that. Because always, when we talk about practice, whether it's these kind of practices or other kind of practices or simple mindfulness, always the question that should be imbuing practice and, and kind of in the background or at the foreground of practice at all times is, what is helpful here? What is helpful? And if I'm interested, deeply interested in moving towards, a, you know, a vastly deepened and enriched and opened up sense of existence, that, that really one has expanded the sense of the sacred, the senses of the sacred, then I need to be practical about that. What actually helps me move towards towards that? I don't care about dogma or nice-sounding formulas. What, what I'm interested in actually is making a difference in, in the life, in the, in the existence, and then indirectly in the culture. So not uh, um, dogma, but, but uh, not dogmatism, but pragmatism. What is actually helpful here? And what are the, um, if you like... Um, temporary stages, provisional stages that move me towards deeper and deeper insight. And often certain kinds of duality are um, need to be respected and seen and entered into as um, uh, stages of perception, if you like, stages of realization and insight because they're on their way to non-duality. People want to jump at the non-dual perspective and actually, and not always, but oftentimes it ends up being uh, really having not much power at all, not much transformative power. It sounds good, and there's a kind of attraction to it, but the question always, 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 whatever the practice, whatever the direction, what's helpful here? What is helpful?
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.